Banner, it being Wednesday and it being after the 11 o'clock news, and we've got two uh, uh, guest panelists with us today. Both of them have been here before, and it's nice to welcome them both, both back. Uh, Bill Warren is here, uh, sitting in for the, uh, whatever he's doing, Jeff Schlemmer, and he's, Bob Vaughn sitting in for the campaigning Robert Metz. And uh, we, uh, we have a number of things I want to talk to my guests about today. Uh, not the least of which, and uh, we don't want to bore you folks, we did talk about it earlier, but I'm curious to get a read on their sense of where the election is today. Talk a little bit about the debate. Now, Bob didn't see it, so I'm not going to specifically talk about what do you think, who won, who lost. Just kind of a general sense of where we are right now. Um, I said earlier on the program that I was very impressed with Howard Hampton. I thought he handled himself very well. If there was a, quote, winner uh, in terms of being effective, I think Howard was the winner. Um, I don't much like what he said, and the polls tell us that the majority of Ontarians don't much, much like what he said either, but I thought he was very impressive. And I used the old line that you say about Ed Broadbent, if he'd been the leader of a major party, he might have been prime minister. In this case, if, uh, if Howard Hampton were the, the leader of the Liberal Party, I think Mike Harris would be in big, big trouble this morning. But that didn't happen. Gil, uh, you did watch part of it? Yes, I did. All whole thing. Yeah, what, what did you think? Well, I was very impressed, as you were, with Hampton. And I think that he kept uh, cleverly coming back to the same issue over and over again, which is the issue of, of the New Democrats, that uh, the wealthy 6% of taxpayers who got the Harris tax cut should have that rolled back to pay for health and education. And he was very clever in turning every question on health, education, or, t or the economy back to that issue. Mm -hmm. And the reason he was doing it was because not everybody, most people didn't watch that whole debate. They mm -hmm. watched like 15 minutes and switched the channel. So yeah. every time they turned on, there was Howard Hampton with his issue. Yeah. That, that was very clever. And I th also felt that he showed some passion on the issue of homelessness and went after the premier. And I think that uh, Hampton uh, clearly knows where he's at in terms of, uh, of the issues and uh, understands the issues and went after that. And he went after McGinty and he went after the Premier as well. So he's going up in support. Uh, the, the polls indicated that this morning. And uh, the election scenario is working out the way I wanted it to, which was that the Liberals would go down. The Premier had a bad week last week and his support, I think, is probably stable at the moment, but will but we'll go down. And that leaves Hampton coming up in the last week of the campaign. Well, I was fascinated by the, uh, and I know you would have been too, Bob, by the way that uh, the Premier, two or three times, deferred to Mr. Hampton and gave him credit. So I want to give you full credit. You've costed everything. You're a heck of a guy, Howard. You're a great fella. Obviously, strategy is to is to bring that NDP vote up, because the more NDP voters there are, the better, in theory anyway, the better it is for Mike Harris. To a point. To a point. If it goes past the point, that's not good. Yeah. But to a point, in the theory now that the NDP is still running significantly behind the Liberals, the more credit Mike gives to the NDP, the more chance there is that some of the Liberals will shift over. I thought he handled that, that Harris did that very, very well and very smoothly. And, I, and you rarely see that in, in a debate, yeah. you know, and, uh, and Hampton responded it to it as well. I mean, he just didn't turn around and, and slash the Premier after yeah. he said something nice to him. But uh, the problem, as you noted, is uh, if the NDP really gets rolling, uh, then that becomes a double-edged sword for the Premier. Yeah. So we'll see how that plays yeah. out during the campaign. Bob, I want to ask you just for a kind of a, a take today. What do you make of where we are today in the campaign? What do you see happening and, and what are you looking for? Well, to tell you the truth, Jim, um, to me it's a very lackluster uh, event. And that's probably because the rules of the game have changed so dramatically over the last, uh, since the last election, we now have fewer people to vote for in larger ridings and a shorter amount of time to do it in and to find out who's running in your riding. Nominations don't close, if I, if I understand it correctly, until tomorrow. Tomorrow, yeah, you could so, still I mean, get in. The election's almost I'm over. I'm about it. The election's <laughs> almost over in most people's minds, and yet not everybody's been nominated yeah. yet. You know, so, I mean, that kind of... Um, tampering with the democratic process is, has really changed the um, um, 
the pro, you know the way people look at this election. At least it's, it's changed the way I, I I've looked at it, and I've had to. Uh, I think people have had to made up make up their minds a lot earlier, um, before the election was even called, before um, before all the speeches have been heard, before the people have knocked on all their doors, which they physically cannot do in mm -hmm. such large riding, ridings now in just uh, and a short election. campaign as well. That's right. So I mean, um, it's a completely different ballgame. I'd like to see how this is going to affect um, incumbents, in fact, uh, opposition parties. Um, it's it's clear in my mind that this is a tactic that the conservative government have uh, employed to uh, favor an incumbent party. Mm -hmm. um, a shorter campaign period always favors an incumbent party. And um, the stricter election uh, laws always in favor of incumbent parties. You try to keep the opposition out of there, you are, you're favoring yourself as an incumbent. So, I mean, I hope that's not lost on the electorate, that, that their democracy is slowly, slowly being eroded. And um, I hope that someday we can just wake up to that. The, as we look around the various ridings in the in the area, we've heard uh, there are some so-called star candidates. Doesn't mean they're going to be winning candidates, but there are some so-called star candidates. Some of them sitting members, some of them not. Steve Peters often gets mentioned in in uh, Elgin Middlesex, London, uh, very popular local mayor. We don't know how that's going to play out, and I'm and I'm not mentioning him to the exclusion of Bruce Smith or the other people running. But there are certain kind of bellwethers that people seem to be looking at. Uh, they're looking a lot at Marion Boyd and Diane Cunningham in London North. Um, and in London West, Daryl Skidmore is certainly making a lot of noise out there. Now, uh, you know, Bob Wood's a very influential and powerful Tory, and he's going to have a ton of money to spend. Um, but Skidmore is certainly out there waving his signs. You guys look around the area, uh, and it, Gil, I'll ask you this, and in, with, with, without undue prejudice, if I, if I may ask you, who are the candidates that you think are, are, are attracting that kind of attention? Who are the bellwether candidates as far as you see? Well, I think that uh, the campaign between Boyd and Cunningham is really interesting because we have a totally polarized riding there. The Liberals seem to be just right out of it, and it's, it'll be... Well, left, I, I, left I, I, I should, no, I should say, though, I should say two polls that I've been privy to lately show that the Liberals are running number two in that uh, in, in that London Center. In London okay. Center. Then those were local polls? Yes. Yeah. Well, I haven't seen those polls, but I think that that's how it will shake out at the end of the election. Uh, and certainly the Liberals have been uh, touting their, uh, quote, star candidates, Skidmore and Peters, but I think as a result of the debate that we had last night that there were a lot of New Democrats. Uh, you know, you can roughly estimate that at least 20% of the population is New Democrat, except that the polls were indicating that the NDP was at 10%. Mm -hmm. So where did those 10% go? Mm -hmm. They had gone over and been convinced by the strategic voting argument to vote liberal. And I think after McGinty's uh, pathetic performance last night, those people are back with the NDP. Mm -hmm. So I think that these, quote, star candidates for the liberals have been weakened by McGinty's poor performance last night. So that'll turn it, I think, into a horse race in terms of uh, the New Democrats, uh, Dave LaPointe in, in Elgin, and uh, and also Senator McNee. Both of those candidates are strong candidates. They're good candidates. And so as the election goes along, I think we'll see that um, the liberal campaign will lose steam and it will affect those those bellwether ridings. Do you want, and I ask either of you this question, and, and again, with all due respect to Mr. Hanton, I was very impressed with him last night, but he has mentioned consistently this uh, top 6% rolling back the taxes, and he indicates there's somewhere there's about a billion and a half dollars. Um, I haven't seen any figure, he hasn't produced any figures, though, as to exactly where that money comes from, and I haven't seen anything. It seems like he's kind of pulled that figure out of the, out of the air. Um, either one of you have any, any experience or understanding of, of where those numbers may be, and maybe, Gil, maybe it's a better question to you. This the top 6% in this billion and a half, is that, is that an accurate figure that he's, that he's bandying about? Yes, it is. The party calculated out how much money the government uh, lost last year uh, by paying that top 6%, their 30% uh, income tax cut. Mm -hmm. So 
That I think that the the total Tory income tax cuts are around six billion or so, and uh, 1.5 billion is 25 percent of the value of that. So it all the math seems to work out there. Are you surprised? Either one of you surprised that the tax cuts were not a bigger issue last? I mean, there was reference to the the previous tax cut having cost money, and so Mr. Hampton hammered on that. Mr. McGinty said that we wouldn't have done it until we'd balanced the budget and so on. But I didn't get the sense that this was an issue that any of them wanted to go very far with, with the possible exception of Mr. Hampton. And 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 the reason for that was that the, neither the premier nor McGinty could answer Hampton's question. He asked it over and over again. He said, you know, uh, are you guys going to roll back that tax cut, and and where are you going to get the money? for your programs, and they, they did not answer that. And, and Hampton has clearly outlined where, where his money will come from for putting in money into health and education. Well, no, I, but Harris did answer that. He said we've, got, we've seen an additional $6 billion in tax revenues. Yeah, well, and, and, that, and then he claimed that that was due to tax cuts, which I totally disagree with. And, and in fact, Hampton corrected him and said, well, you know, it's the American economy and, and the Canadian economy that's, that's doing well. And that... That statement by the premier that uh, you know it, the debate's over, tax cuts create jobs. I've seen information uh, from economists that show that if you want to stimulate the economy, the worst way to do it is tax cuts. It's much better, for instance, to employ nurses or teachers or to do public works programs. And that, uh, yes, some jobs are created by tax cuts, but not very many. It's the poorest way to do it. This is Left, Right, and Center with Gil Warren and Bob Vaughn sitting in for our regular uh, panelists, neither of whom could be with us today. And the lines are always open for you, too. 643-1290, star-1290 on the Cantel. Bob, I want to ask you about the, uh, uh, again, this issue, the relative issue of importance, of the importance of tax, tax cuts to Ontarians. Because my perception is, and certainly not just from on the air, but all the people that I talk to on the air and off the air and out through the community and so on, I don't sense much downright a downright apathy towards more tax cuts. I don't hear anybody saying to me, I want more tax cuts. The, the ones that were there are debatable. But well, I don't let, hear... me, let me say it to you, Jim. I want more tax cuts. Do you? And, and, <laughs> but, but I mean, in, and I don't mean that people don't want to see their taxes okay, lowered. I, you know, I mean, everybody wants to see their taxes lowered. But I don't hear anybody saying that I want, I expect Mike Harris to do this or Dalton McGinty or Howard Hampton to do it in the next two or three years. Well, uh, Harris did what he said he would do. It. He, lowered, he lowered the taxes, the amount that he said he would lower them. If he's saying that he's going to make a, another cut in taxes, I, I, I'd have to believe him. But the thing is, you know, if he expects to have the same level of socialized uh, medicine, same level of socialized education that we've had in the past and, and do it by reducing the amount of revenue, I don't know how he's going to do that. You know, I was listening to you and Gil uh, talk about um, the $6, six uh, billion, or whatever, six, top 6%, and mm -hmm. however, however much the rich are paying in taxes. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, this is, it's very difficult for me to talk about such things because it's like a philosopher is trying to talk about how many angels can fit on the head of a pin. Mm -hmm. The same, the analogy is how many socialists can you fit in the House of Commons. Basically, it's, it's, they're all the same to me. Uh, whether they're talking, uh, you know, make the rich pay, which is the old conservative, or <laughs> yeah, <but laughs> it's, easy to, it's easy to make that mistake, mm -hmm. old NDP uh, communist line, or, you know, uh, or, or Harris talking about we're not going to have any voucher systems for education or any choice in education. Um, you know, we're going we're to provide universal health care for all. I mean, that's the same sort of line. You cannot have your cake and eat it too. We have to have some sort of complete uh, evolution of, of our, um, of our uh, House of Commons where you have people in there who want not just to look at how you can make things um, uh, streamlined or how you can trim the fat, but you have to go in there with a, with a, a new attitude of how you can deliver um, education, health care, um, and some of the social uh, benefits that we take for granted. How you can deliver those um, 
in a completely different way. Get the government out of them completely, but still provide those services. That's what I'm waiting for in this election, and I've yet to hear it from uh, the three parties. Gil, I want to ask you a question about the NDP, and, 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 and again, I'm not trying to be prejudicial at all. I'm, I'm genuinely curious to know the answer. We had uh, NDP government here for five years. We had the opportunity during those five years. They had a clear mandate. They had a majority, a clear majority in, in, in the legislature. They didn't make the rich pay during those five years. Why not? But they did. The, the, the 30% tax cut that Harris cut was taxes the NDP levied during their term of office. And uh, there were uh, surcharges on higher incomes. And, and see, that's the point that Howard... But the surcharge is still there. Harris didn't yeah. take it off. But he, rolled, you know, he, he cut back uh, the 30% tax cut, and then he loaded up uh, tuition fees and property taxes and user fees yeah, and everything sure. else. Yeah. You know, I mean, mm -hmm. far more has been taken away in terms of other taxes than the tax cut. But I think you're right when you say that the, the people are not asking for tax cuts. I mean, what they're saying is this, if we've got the money, we want it into health and education. Mm -hmm. On the one... Uh, so people People are not responding to Harris's 20% tax cut. They're not responding to McGinty. But at the same time, I'm talking to people door-to-door -door canvassing during the election, and people are saying that the wealthy can pay. Uh, the top 6% did pay before during the, Her during the NDP government, even during the Peterson government. Mm -hmm. So we need that revenue. So on the left side of the political spectrum, it's curious, this election, because the left is saying we want a tax increase. And, and, and on the other... Well, they want a tax increase on somebody else. Yes. I don't want it yeah. on oh, me. I don't right. want anybody, anybody let me but ask, me. Let me but, ask you but a question. But that's an interesting position for the NDP to take to uh, go for a tax cut. Because you've never seen an election before where a government... <laughs> where a party has gone out and said, we want to create taxes. So, But the NDP is, I think, the public is responding to that. No, no, the NDP has always said that. Of course, we'll raise taxes on the rich guys. Not They've during an election campaign, we haven't. Yeah. I'd like to ask you a question, if I could. You got time? Yeah. Um, why should a person who is, is wealthy um, pay more for the same services that um, I'm receiving, whether it's health care, education, the roads, the streets, um, the ability to have a social safety net, those things. Why should somebody who's lucky enough, skilled enough um, uh, to be wealthy and have more money than you and I, why should he pay more? So you're asking a question about why do we have a progressive income tax system? Well, if you want to phrase yeah, it in that okay. terms, yeah. Why, why, should yeah. We, well, why should the wealthy pay more for the same service? Because uh, from my perspective, the wealthy have benefited more from be being part of our society. Well, the no, guys, no, no, just they, a second. I mean, the guys listen, made a million. They, have, kid, the they have kids in the same schools. Yeah. They, have, they go to the same hospitals we do, unless they particularly want to go to uh, Rochester or wherever to get mm -hmm. better care in some cases. Um, they they ride, drive on the same roads. They use the same laws that we have uh, to to make themselves wealthy. We all have the opportunity to do what they did. Um, it's just that we may not be as skilled to make ourselves wealthy. No, uh, no. We have all the same opportunities, the same services, no, and yet they should pay more? Why? No, in, in our you're ignoring the problem of power and privilege and class in our society. And if, if I am a wealthy person and I inherit a, a wealth, well, uh, an, uh, okay, can we set an that inheritance that's from good, my family. Well, that's a good point, but let's set that aside, yeah. because statistically that's a relatively small group of the, quote, rich in Canada. The, uh, but the majority of people in Canada who qualify, what is over 60,000, whatever the number is now, it's an arbitrary number, the vast majority did not inherit their money. The vast majority of them made it themselves. So maybe can we talk about those people? Well, I, I, I would question that, because where do they get that $1,000 to start their business? But okay, let's, let's accept that. What I'm saying is that if you are benefiting greatly from the resources and wealth of our society in terms of having uh, a business that's making a lot of money, then you have the ability to pay more than the person who is a working guy at, out at Ford. And, and so that's how I see it, that you have the, you benefited greatly from society, so you owe, you owe more back to society than the guy 
who's only making minimum wage or something like that. So this isn't about paying for the services you get. This is kind of no, a, no. It's where do you get the revenue to to fund to fund okay. government programs? Gentlemen, put your headphones on if you would, please, and we'll go to the phones where uh, Lisa is waiting. Hi, Lisa. Hi. 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 I just wanted to call in. I, I've uh, I wanted to call in about Mr. Harris's remarks last night about about schools, and I'd just like to point out that. He was asked the question by, I believe, Colin Vaughan about um, about charter and voucher schools, and his remark was that um, he wouldn't support private schools. And people who are around the education issues know that he, in fact, uh, avoided the question completely by giving this answer because people like Mr. Metz who support um, the idea of charter and voucher schools um, consider them to be public education, and of course the rest of us don't. Mm -hmm. And so he didn't really answer the question. Mm -hmm. I think that's a fair comment. He he was pretty fudgy on that. I agree. I agree. And uh, because he was weaving around avoiding that commitment. Mm -hmm. And I think it's kind of the Bill Clinton, you know, scenario of I didn't have sex with that woman, you know. <laughs> if, if I'm not um, informed about that issue, yeah. I could, it could appear that he, he did say no to charters and vouchers when in fact he didn't. And I think, um, I think people have to be made uh, aware of this type of terminology. These, these debates are very uh, highly organized. There's a lot of preparedness, and I, I would say that last night, the only person I really had a sense of feeling um, a sense of humanitarianism or a real feeling for the person who wasn't as scripted was Howard Hampton, and I just thought he did very well, and he came across in a manner that um, that that was honest and believable and credible, and I found Mike Harris to appear to be like one of his ads. I'm not a Mike Harris fan, I'll say that up front, but I found him to be like he is in his ads, and, and I, I never have a sense of who the real person, well, I think I do have a sense, unfortunately, of who the real person is, but I think we just see the Mike Harris, the TV persona, and Dalton McGinty, well, I'm afraid, I think people expected he wasn't going to do that well, and I, and I don't think he did do very well, but... Lisa, appreciate your comments. Thanks. Today. Thanks for the call. Okay. And Jerry's waiting to join us. Hi, Jerry. Uh, good morning, Jim. I just wanted to uh, back up your um, your guest who just made the comment that he doesn't agree why um, people who, should we say, are well, more well-off, maybe have taken risks uh, in their lives to get where they are, why they should pay through the tax system. because uh, like, Why they should pay more why for the same service. Yes. Because the it doesn't make service. sense. It, it, like Ontario seems to do that. If you're on the welfare system or uh, any kind of government-funded um, 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 backup net system, if you want to call it that, they they benefit at the end of the year in their income tax, um, and most of them do. Whereas you get somebody who's maybe a doctor, lawyer, or something like that, even a, a nurse, uh, a social engineer. Um, these people, you know, they've done, they've made their risk, take the risks in life. They've done um, their homework, they've paid their tuition fees, and they're you know they're well off. So why should they be uh, penalized for you know? taking those risks in life. Like well, if I could respond to that, like take, for instance, the, the doctor as an example, right? Mm -hmm. uh, our public education system put that doctor through uh, public school, high school, university, and medical school. Every doctor that graduates is subsidized by thousands and thousands of dollars by the average guy who works out at GM Diesel or at 3M. And so it's a public asset, it's a public value to have a doctor educated. So there, there's risk being taken there, not just by the doctor to go through medical school. And incredible hard work, and it's, what, and it's great that he, that he graduates. But 
there's a public subsidy there as well. And that's another argument about why someone who has benefited from the higher education should be paying the higher taxes. What about back. the guy that is a high school dropout and builds a, builds a company and makes a bunch of money every year? He has a better argument for not paying higher taxes, and I agree. But I still think that they should all. You know, that idea is, is actually very scary to me, it, it, that because we went through a public education system, we now owe something to society. Um, what do we owe? Who determines what we owe? How are they going to get what we owe? You know, that kind of um, argument can be used to say, okay, you went through public education, now you owe us five-year service in this kind of an endeavor, or five-year service in that kind of an endeavor. You owe us all your money, you owe us this, you owe us that. When does it stop and who decides? But don't you agree that the, the public is pouring money into, into No, the I agree school? that taxpayers are pouring money into the school system. I'm certainly paying a lot of taxes. Um, so I you subsidize that doctor's education? I'm paying for my kid's education. That's the way I look at it. As a matter of fact, I'm probably paying more money into the public education system through my taxes. I think it's about maybe $7,000 a year per child. Oh, that, yeah. Then, um, then I would pay to send them to a Montessori school, which I've looked at. It was about five to $6,000 a year. So, I mean, if I had my druthers, I'd send my kids to a private school for less money but I'm not but, allowed to do that but you're a school board trustee yeah I'm a school board trustee because <laughs> I'm also a taxpayer and a child and a, and a parent with two kids in the system because Jerry? I can't send uh, them yeah, elsewhere Jim, yeah sure I just wanted to end off my comment by saying that I think you touched on it just about a five or ten minutes ago when you said that uh, uh, in Ontario we seem to have this resent towards the rich and if, if I'm rich then I'm all right I shouldn't have to be penalized for it but if you're rich you should be penalized for it yeah Ontario is a funny con um, province yeah it is too thanks for the call thanks, bye now bye-bye uh, and uh, Stan's with us hi Stan hi there I'd like to take issue with one of your guests there yeah. I forget his name but he's a fellow who advocates that that uh, wealthier people should be penalized Kill. more. To Kill. me, this yeah. sounds an awful lot like a quotation I'm sure you must be familiar with, from each according to their need to each, or to their ability oh, to give, each give according to their need. Now, to me, that sounds like pure and outright socialism, which just ain't going to work. No, Sorry, I, 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 I'm, you don't, if I wanted to be in a communist country, I would probably now, now, move to I want to respond to this. You know, I like to come on this show and talk about politics and talk about the issues. I don't like to be red-baited. I'm not telling my friend over here that he's a fascist. And, uh, and I think that... Well, what are that you saying? What I'm, are you saying? I'm saying I want the same progressive tax system that Roosevelt had after the war and Mackenzie King. I, that does not make me a communist. The as it stands now actually does follow that dicta because people from higher income brackets are taxed higher, up to and including over 50% of what they make. That's still not enough. What I'm That's not fair enough. Would you rather go to a totalitarian system now, see, you, you're, that dictates to you what you deserve? I would like to go back to Lester Pearson's tax levels in the 60s. And that doesn't, that's that's now, what we're talking about. Ask any small businessman in this province about taxation. Now, these people don't get unemployment insurance when their business fails. And that's going on at an incredible rate. Now, you're advocating some kind of lack of incentive in the system. I mean, where is the incentive to excel if everybody's going to be the same? And that sort of thing uh, comes out in the wash where uh, 
a great deal of employees who work for small business are out there in in, uh, in unemployment line. I think you got a point there in terms of uh, unemployment insurance, and maybe small business people, the owner, should be allowed to pay into the fund so that if their business does go bankrupt, that they have they have a, a social security uh, net there to fall back on. I good point. I but would uh, as that. concerns social engineering, I would avoid the word should that. That leads us to totalitarianism. Thanks for the call today, Stan. Right. Good to hear from you. There's one, there's, you mentioned the, the Pearson. Do you know offhand? Because I don't know. What was the top marginal tax rate under Pearson? Do you know? I don't know. It was higher than it was now. I'm, you it's know. Higher than 50%? 51%? Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure. I don't know. I just know that they were, the government at that time was able to get the revenue it needed to, to fund social programs. And I know that as we've gone towards this idea of, a flat tax, everybody pays the same, the money's dried up for social but programs. But, 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 I, I'm not an expert on I what the tax said, We haven't gone towards that. We're nowhere near a flat tax. Well, I mean, Harris, when he, when he got in, promised 30% for everybody. He didn't promise a, a graduated tax mm -hmm. cut, right? Okay, let's go back to the phones where Gord waits. Hi, Gord. Hi, Jim. Yeah. It seems kind of interesting that your uh, guest, Gil, would say something like uh, that if we're forced to go to school and we're forced to pay taxes, we owe our loyalty to the state. I was wondering why, if we're forced to do all these things, we owe loyalty well, that, to the people. That, that is a good question, Gil. If we look at it from an abstract point of view and set our ideologies aside, if, you know, we are forced to pay into the public education system. Uh, if you want to become and a we're forced to go to school. Yeah, we're forced to go to school. How does that relate with the idea? Because I know you're you're a, you're a defender of individual freedom. How well, does actually, that? Actually, I don't think he is. Well, Jim. it seems kind of interesting. He'd say that he's not a, a red, and then he would say, "Well, I wouldn't call my colleague here a fascist." But it seems to me they're all the same. They all believe in force. Well, let's, let's let's get let's get an answer here from Gil. In terms of the idea that like you're saying that the doctor has a responsibility because he benefited, but he didn't have any choice in doing it. That was the only way he could get his education. Well, I think that I believe in freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, freedom to vote. Uh, I believe in in the basic uh, democratic freedoms of our society, and I will defend those against anybody who challenges those. I also feel that uh, you have to strike a balance in your rights, like. Freedom of speech should, should not allow uh, a right-wing Nazi to go around and deny the Holocaust, okay? Why not? Because I think that, that, that uh, there are limits to all freedoms. And the limit that you're placing on it is that he has to agree with you. No. The, what I'm saying is there aren't absolute freedoms. We live in a complicated society, the most complicated society we've ever had. And we have to be... Well, therefore, we, we deserve fewer rights because it's complicated. No, we have to balance off those rights. And, and, and the balance seems to be that your opinion is that certain people shouldn't have those rights because you don't like them. No, no. What, what I feel is that if you have a public education system, everybody should attend that, that, that system and that you shouldn't have... So uh, you believe in the use of force. So force is a good thing because you like it. Now, ours, our society uh, always relies on force. To, uh, our police rely on force. Our military. So force do. on uh, innocent and law-abiding people is a good thing. The initiation no. of force versus retaliatory force, I exactly. think, is what the question is. The, the, the point is that we have to pay our taxes to fund our social programs. And because you want them to, not because there's no, any natural right in it. We, we all benefit from the taxes that we pay. We have access yeah, to health care and education. To. 
So then we have to get. Well, what are you going to make taxes? Out. Taxes voluntary charity. You never get any money. I mean, there are things that that have to be done in our society. Right now, there's there's a war on in Europe, and I don't agree with it. But my tax money is going to pay for that. Yeah, there because, you go. It's pretty despicable that we have to pay for this thing to no, kill be, other people. No, because our our government in Ottawa, which was elected by a majority of the people, has decided to pursue that policy. Yeah, but we didn't get a vote on it. No, we got a vote on the on that government. We will get another vote. Well, there on you it. go. It, it seems that further removed from our ability to do something is a bad thing, not a no, good thing. No, no. We have a representative democratic system where you get a chance every four years to either throw that government out or put them back in again. You can't have a referendum every day on every issue. Well, that's why they should do fewer things, not more things. No, the government should do the things necessary to make the society work. I think we can have a referendum yeah, on like whether we go to war. Like what you're advocating here, Gil, seems to me, is that the government do more and more things than we have less and less control over it. And one of those things is the ability to make war. And if we had a, a system where the state was smaller, they wouldn't have the ability to go and make war without our consent. I appreciate the call, Guard. have to leave it there. Okay. Folks, we'll be back in just a second. Lots more to come on Left, Right, and Center with Bob Vaughn and Gil Warren. Robert Bond and Gil Warren with us on this edition of Left, Right, and Center, and Ian's waiting on the phone. Hi, Ian. Morning, Jim. How are you today? I'm fine, thanks. Um, just recently over Christmas, I had an opportunity to spend a couple weeks backpacking around Mexico, mm -hmm. and one of the things I saw was that Mexico provided a, a stark contrast to uh, our, our country, as socialist as it is, mm -hmm. and I found there, was, um, there were a lot of freedoms in Mexico. There was the freedom to live behind walls and have razor wire fences, and there was the freedom to starve. Mm -hmm. And there was the freedom to worry about crime. And I think that what people forget is that the, the nature of our society, even the rich have a vested interest in paying um, a proportionally higher amount of taxes than the poor. Mm -hmm. Because if you get to the point where you totally abandon everyone, mm -hmm. poor people that have nothing are more powerful than those that have something to lose. Because mm -hmm. once you have nothing, then they can't take it away from you. Oh, absolutely. And I saw lots of evidence where... There were uh, a lot of extremes of the haves and have-nots, but the haves also had to spend their money on weapons, yeah. private security, yeah. fencing. There were lots of beautiful homes, but they were all behind barbed wire well, and fencing. You know, but there's another element to this, and we've discussed it on this program before, and I've talked about it uh, uh, other than on left, right, and center. And I cannot define what this is, but I do believe there is a moral responsibility we all have to each other. And I think there's an abject moral failure in countries like Mexico. There, there's no economic necessity for that differentiation between the rich and poor in a country like that. It's not driven by economics. It's driven by personal greed and by an indifference to the suffering of others. Oh, and, I agree, and, but and I don't I think that's separate from economics. I think that <clears throat> it's, I think it illustrates you can, you can leave it up to the rich to contribute on their own, which is not happening in Mexico, and I don't think that they're any less moral than we are in no, Canada. But, no, but they're le the, 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 the people have less power in Mexico. The, the, uh, the average Mexican has no political power at all, zero zilts. Exactly. They're too busy worrying about surviving. Well, it's not what they're, they're worrying about. They, it's institutionally, they have no power. And that's, the, I mean, I think that's, I don't, I don't think you can look at, I can't, I, I don't, I have trouble with people who look at Mexico, for example, say, here is an example of capitalism run rampant. Because it's not about capitalism, it's about totalitarianism. They've had a totalitarian state there, a one-party rule, for 60-some years. I'm not disputing that, but what I'm saying is that, uh, even in that case, though, if, it is a to if, it's, a, if it's related to a political system, the, there's still a, a lack of will, political, economic, whatever, on the part of those with something to see that... Well, I agree. That's the it, moral failure I was talking about. It, but I think that it is tied. I mean, a moral failure is, is not, it's not necessarily related to capitalism or socialism. No, no but I agree. It's... 
it's the idea, like you say, of our, our, our obligations to each other. Mm-hmm. And I think that while Mexico may not be an example of, uh, I'm not looking, holding it up as an example of rampant capitalism gone mm-hmm. wrong, mm-hmm. but what I'm holding it up as is the fact of that there are no institutional supports for the average person. No, there aren't. And part of that is due to the fact that the poor have no power. Mm-hmm. Part of the reason they have no power is they have no education. Mm-hmm. They have, they're far more concerned about surviving. Yep. They don't have a socialized medical system. They don't have these things. If Mexican, the Mexican people were to have those things, then they would have the freedom to, to worry about political accountability. They would be motivated to go for these things. But while their primary concerns are education, survival, uh, basic health care, and keeping a roof over their heads, these people are not going to care about political accountability. They're not going to act towards changing the political system, putting in a government that would bring about a more equitable social system as well. Intricately tied, though. Can I throw in a couple words here? Um, I agree with your basic gist that uh, wealthy people have to uh, be willing to share, and we have to balance out the interests of, of wealthy people and poor people. But it, when you bring in Mexico, you bring in the third world, and there are countries like India that are democracies that are equally poor, where the rich also are walled in. Uh, and I think that you have to see the role of um, uh, us, uh, the, the advanced, most industrialized countries, uh, in, in, in creating some of the poverty that we see in the third world. And uh, there is a process going on where money is being sucked out of the third world, and what happens is that the, the wealthy people there become a little islands of wealth like, like, like what we have up here in, in, in the north. And on the other hand, everybody else is starving to death. And I think that we can't just say, oh, those guys are, are bad because they're not running their society correctly when we leave out the fact that those governments are owing billions of dollars in debt, that the interest is being paid to us, and that we're sucking money out of those countries. Yeah, but why did they borrow the money in the first place? They didn't borrow it for the people. I mean, you know, they're, they're, we, we're talking about, in my mind, yeah. criminal activity on the part of many of these well, third world governments. Yes, some of them are corrupt, and there were military regimes that wanted to buy more MiG fighters and stuff like that. But at the same time, there were development projects foisted on them by us, which said that you need a mine over here, and you need a railroad, and you need these locomotives, and this mine will provide jobs and prosperity, except that all the, the raw materials went on the ship and left, and, and the government was left with the yeah. cost of the infrastructure. Ian, you've raised some very good points today. I appreciate the call. Thank you, Jim. Have a good day. You too. Interesting parallel here, and the only one that I can speak of with any knowledge at all, but you look at a country like Cuba, for example, and Lord mm-hmm. knows I'm no, I'm no fan of communism or even of serious socialism, but the contrast between Mexico and Cuba are absolutely startling yes. and dynamic. Yes. Because there you do have a country where, in the context of a totalitarian state, and I'm not defending that, but in that context, you do have people who feel they have, if not political power in the sense that we know it, that they do have the power to be heard. They do have the power to have their interests taken care of. And you have a country that, uh, unlike Mexico, does not have these walled compounds. I mean, I, I, I met and moved in some very high circles in Cuba when I was there, and these people live marginally better than the poorest people in Cuba. I mean, I'm talking Supreme Court judges, uh, senior doctors in the hospitals and so on, who live in very, very modest homes. In uh, some cases, don't have cars at all. If they got a car, they got some old piece of junk that the government gave them. Um, and, and I'm not defending this at all. I'm trying to point out that there, there was a certain, and, I, and again, I'm, don't ask me to define it because I can't, there was a certain sense of moral responsibility on the part of the leaders of that country, which may have been distorted, and some of them, we don't know, and Fidel may, you know, live on a castle on a mountaintop somewhere that nobody ever sees. We don't know what happens behind those closed doors, but we do know that the very serious, the very serious <laughs> senior members of that government live not unlike Mr. and Mrs. Average Cuban, either, too. Yeah, so, no, uh, so it's not yeah. just it's not just about ideology, it's not just about geography, there's got to be this other element there. At some point, there has to be some 
kind of kind of uh, a society-wide sense of responsibility for each other. And I think I think the question there is, as a government, uh, uh, are its jobs, healthcare, and education a priority? It is with the Cuban government. Now, I disagree with their political structure there, but you could have a third-world country that was a democratic socialist government that had the same priorities of healthcare, education, and jobs. So. That is what makes the difference between a society which is which is polarized uh, between wealthy and, and, and poor people. You know, there's an interesting uh, use of words, democratic socialism, which is uh, seems to be, you know, an acceptable term. What about democratic capitalism or democratic free country? If the people of uh, Canada decide to elect um, a, a, a system which is not socialist, would you would you accept that? Because it has been well, democratic. Well, already said this: that in a democracy, you accept the will of the will of the majority. Right. I don't think we have a democratic socialist system now, and I'm accepting that the government is legitimate, and they were both the provincial government and the federal government were duly elected. Okay, we have to pause for a second. We'll be right back. I'm going to talk to Ron, and we'll talk to you too on left, right, and center. We're back, and Ron's with us. Hi, Ron. Yes. Uh, good morning. Yes. Um, social upheaval usually creates change. Yeah. But the Mexican meltdown that happened a few years ago, uh, up in the uh, west and the north here, we bailed them out, which uh, retarded that change that possibly should have gone on in Mexico. Mm -hmm. And uh, as far as speaking about morality, that, that was a fairly immoral thing for us to do. Sometimes people have to go through a little pain to, uh, to get some long-term gain, and uh, we, we in the north didn't allow that to happen down there. We bailed out Mexico because the debts were owed to the big banks up here. It was a basically a subsidy program to make sure that our that our our banks did not go bust, holding billions of dollars in debt. I mean, they weren't doing favors to the Mexican people. No, I disagree, Gal. I th I, I, that's part of it. But certainly, our banks have gone bust to the tune of hundreds of billions of dollars to 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 developers and investors all around the world. They can afford to eat billions of dollars of losses. They do it literally every year. So right. I agree with you to a point. That was part of the bailout. But the other part, and it's what Ron talked about, is that we have a sensibility in the West that when that sensibility is aroused, for example, we don't want revolution in Mexico because we know what happens in revolutions. Who gets killed? Who, who gets killed? The innocent people get killed more than anybody. And we have a certain sensibility that's kind of... It's not always invoked. We're very kind of uh, we're kind of particular about when we're going to feel bad about it. But we don't want to see tanks and, and troops in the streets of the cities of, of, of Mexico because we know that a whole lot of women and children are going to die. That's supposedly the argument why we're in Kosovo. Although in fact the reality is just the just the, just the reverse. We're killing the women and children. Yeah. Well, they tried they tried the, uh, in the south of Mexico with. Uh with the uh, Chiefs down there, or whatever they yeah. were called, yeah. and uh, once again, uh, we uh, didn't support them. They even did it on a particular day where everybody would have sat up and take notice, yeah. which was New Year's Day, mm -hmm. and uh, once again, it fell flat in its face mm -hmm. and was buried, and uh, uh, through the uh, consent of us in the North, once again. Yeah, well, we're scared, though, too. We are scared of gorillas. Gorillas make us nervous. Right on. You know, I mean, really, I think that's a big part of it. We are. We're scared of gorillas because we look around the world at gorilla movements, and, and there seldom have been, since the Second World War anyway, they have seldom sort of been on what we perceive to be the right side of these arguments, even though in their own context they may very well have been. Ron, thanks for the call today. Yeah, because we know we're targeted. Let's face it, yeah. there's a big zero on the back of all of us in the North, in the, in the States, Canada, yeah. and, the, uh, and the rich countries, and uh, that's exactly what we're trying to avoid is, uh, so people can't see that target anymore. I think you're exactly right. Thanks for the call, Ron. Hey. Guys, as we look ahead, we've really gone over the place, all over the place, and I, I quite like that. I hope our listeners have enjoyed it as well. But I want to come back to the uh, to the election. Just ask each of you for a prognostication for the next week. You think there's and, and Bob, you said earlier that it is kind of a, a whole hum. I don't know if that's the word you use, but it's kind of a lackluster campaign. And I certainly agree with you. But do you do you expect anything to happen? Uh, we've got two weeks left for all intents and purposes. In the next week, expect to see anything different? Um, no, not really, unless somebody really. Uh 
makes uh, big mistakes, like if somebody orders pizzas again, that kind of a thing. Uh, you know, that kind of a thing can destroy the Harris momentum. Um, prediction, I'd probably say the Harris would probably get in again, reduce, reduce majority, but um, mainly because he's pumped up uh, Hampton, just like you uh, alluded to earlier on. I mean, you want to get that NDP vote up there to protect the conservative, or at least he does. I don't, I'm not voting conservative, but, uh, you know, that's what... Uh, that's what I predict. Harris will get in with a reduced majority and okay, prove me wrong. Gil, I ask uh, you, look, again, just to, not all the way to the election, just the next week, do you expect anything interesting to happen? Yeah, I think that the, the, a lot of people, the lackluster idea is actually people being undecided. Mm -hmm. And I've been out knocking on doors, and there are a lot of undecided people. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they've ruled out one party, but they're still troubled about picking two. And, and I think that the debate will galvanize uh, people's opinions one way or the other, and we'll see more people making uh, decisions on how they're going to vote. So in the next week, I anticipate the Liberal campaign will wilt, uh, the NDP will come on strong, and, and we'll see people starting to make up their minds. This is going to be a very hot election, and uh, the protests against Harris indicate to me that, uh, that it is not lackluster in the mm -hmm. sense that uh, he's been picketed. And In fact, there have been more people arrested during this election campaign than anybody can ever remember. Somebody said to me, though, every time one of those people goes to jail, uh, Harris claps his hands because it's another vote for him. I don't, I don't think so. That's that's Harris's spin doctors making well, that I'm, not a, I'm not a spin doctor. They want, I think that's what's happening. They just want from what I agree. Just they, from what I hear, I hear from people on the street. They want the protesters to go away. I mean, uh, Harris's constituency of 35% hate, hate protesters and, uh, and always will. But for the undecided people who can't decide whether they're going to vote uh, Liberal or NDP, they are watching uh, what's going on with the protests, and it reminds people of all the cuts that Harris has made. I've got to tell you, though, Gil, and, and, and with the greatest of respect, that's not what I hear from those under, undecided people. What I'm hearing overwhelmingly from people who say, I don't know which way I'm going to vote, but I'm sure not voting in support of those people. I, th I, think that, I don't think it's Harris' spin doctors saying that every, every guy that goes to jail is an extra vote for him. I think that's exactly what's happening. Well, we'll see how it turns out uh, when we get to the election. We've only got a minute here, yeah. I, and I, it's unfair me to put you on the spot, but I do have to ask you. I've had complaints from a number of people. Uh, enough that it's, I'm going to see what I can find out about it. People who claim that uh, they've had NDP signs put on their lawns without being asked simply because they're union members. Um, is there any kind of, do you know anything about that at all? I, I would think that's a Tory probably calling you. Oh, no, no. I, they, okay, they, here's, how the, here's how it works with signs. Yeah. Uh, people have had... Well, I, know, I know how it's supposed to work, yeah, people, but I, I, I've had yeah. calls from enough people, and they've identified themselves, and I know who they are in the yeah. community, and I know they're not Tory people. Right. Uh, I've had at least a half a dozen people do that. In fact, the two cases, I went out and looked at their homes, and, they, and I said, well, why don't you take it up? Well, mm. I don't want to do that because I am a union member. I don't want to upset anybody. But the bottom line was nobody asked me. Now, it may be happened to Tories right. and Liberals as well. I don't know. I just wondered if you had any insight into that. So people are asked each time, do they want to sign? They're asked either at the door when they're being canvassed or they're phoned. Or they were on the list okay. from last time and they're phoned again and said, do you want to have a so sign? So nobody would... There, no there shouldn't be anybody getting signs just because they're a union member. In fact, that stupid politics, I would, I would uh, question, you know, that... The people complaining are they really uh, just your undecided voter? Well, or they had si they had signs on their lawns. Yeah, but I mean, so I'm, did they get a, a sign? Uh, did they order the sign and then claim that they got one they didn't want? I don't know. Uh, we'd have to look. Okay, but, have to look but into no it. policy that there way. There should be no, no, no assumption. That's that stupid yeah. politics, and I don't 
that's not happening. Okay. Uh, thank you, both of you, for being here. It's a pleasure always to see both of you, and uh, it's always fun to do left, right, and center, whoever is in the other two chairs here, folks. We know that you enjoy it because you keep telling us, and uh, keep those cards and letters coming in. If there are issues of the day that you'd like us to discuss or just general issues, please let us know, and we'll try to bring them uh, to the panel, uh, whoever may be on the panel that particular day. We remind you that coming up at 12.30 today, Bud Polhill, our automotive expert, will be in the hot seat here on Ask the Experts, ready, willing, and able to answer any of your questions, uh, anything to do with automotive, and we've got that great prize package, too. A trip out to the uh, beautiful Pine Ridge for a lovely lunch with you and three of your friends, courtesy of A Universal Limousine Service. They'll whisk you there and whisk you back. Now, on tomorrow's program, we have a whole bunch of stuff, and I've misplaced it all. No, I haven't. Here we are. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about your lawns, because this is the time of year when a lot of people are paying attention, particularly with the 24th of May weekend coming up. Uh, we've got the good people from Neutron going to come in and give us some tips on that. Uh, we've got uh, Abchabar and some of his friends coming in, talking about the roles of the Arab community in our society here, in our community. Uh, we've got, oh, we've got a ton of stuff. Particularly of interest is the, the new interview in McLean's Magazine with Brian Mulrooney. Tony Wilson-Smith is going to join us and explain how they got that thing out. we got just a ton of stuff tomorrow, so make sure you don't miss a moment. Anyway, for Bob and Gil, and for Ryan and Kathleen and Sarah and the whole staff, and Sarah, thanks for the good work on the Milgard uh, interview there. For all of us, it's Jim saying take care of each other, mind how you go, and we'll see you tomorrow on the next edition of Talk of the Town.